Heavenly Father, this morning we confess, even as we just did in song, that truly all wisdom, grace, mercy, power are to you. You alone are God and you alone are worthy of worship. And even as we come to this crowning moment of the year, as we celebrate all that you have given us, may our attention be on you. May you get all the glory this morning, Lord. It is your goodness that we proclaim, your grace that we rely on, your faithfulness that will lead us home. So Lord, may you be honored in this hour together. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I am fully intended to continue our series through, uh, in November, focusing on the idea of Thanksgiving, getting a, a biblical view of Thanksgiving. The first week, we looked at Romans 1, the idea that uh, the world around us, it's not that they don't know the truth, it's that they are in rebellion against God. They are thankless, the passage says. And we looked at 2 Corinthians, another passage that, that there we see uh, Paul in all these terrible circumstances, and yet his hope is in Christ. Why? That, that maybe through his broken body, the gospel may shine forth, that thanks may pour forth to God the Father. That is our goal in Christ, that God would get all the glory. This morning I intended... For us to look at several other passages, including Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always for all things. Ephesians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, give thanks. Philippians 4.6, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, in everything give thanks. But my week went a little bit different than expected this week. And I was not able to finish that. And so maybe next year what we'll do is return to those four passages and, and study those through the week of uh, the month of November. But this morning I want to turn our attention to one of my favorite psalms, probably my favorite Thanksgiving psalm, Psalm 65. I think it's about this time last year that I came across this psalm for the first time as we were working our way through the psalms. And it's a psalm I find myself continually coming back to. In fact, in Psalm 65, as I mentioned, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. And as you work your way through it, you see a psalm of thanksgiving to God for two specific things that he has provided. It's for his spiritual provision. Verses 1 to 5, he is redeemer. And for his physical provision, verses 6 to 13, he is creator and sustainer. We praise God for salvation and for physical provision. Provision, And so we're going to work our way through this psalm. Uh, it's probably somewhat familiar with it, uh, to you. As I mentioned, we went uh, through it in, on Wednesday, uh, a little over a year ago. But we're going to turn our attention to it again this morning. And the psalm starts in verses 1 to 5, praising God for his spiritual provision. It begins, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. It's waiting for you. It is yours. You deserve this. Zion, as you know, in Scripture, in the Psalms specifically, it represents Jerusalem, where David brought the tabernacle, eventually where the temple was built. This is where God dwelt on earth. 
There is praise waiting for you, Lord, right here in Zion. There's a growing desire among God's people to to worship the Lord, to lift up his name. They're waiting expectantly for God, ready to praise. Can't help but read that and and, and wonder, could, could we say praise is awaiting you, O God, in Altoona? Do we come with an expectant heart, ready to worship, longing to praise our God? After just another week that no matter what you've been through, it's been full of God's blessing and you come to church, are you coming ready to praise God about to burst? Praise is waiting you, God. And to you, the vow shall be performed. The idea of a vow here ties along with worship that is owed to God. It is, it is worship that, like I said, that is owed. Maybe... Uh, in response to God, think of the beginning of the year as the farmer starts to, to plow and to plant his field and to prepare for the harvest coming at the end of the year. And he's doing all this work and, and he's doing this work, but he's doing it expectantly that God will provide. And as you come to Psalm 65, God has provided. And so the vow And since the the worship that I promised at the beginning of the year as I was planting, now it's time to pay that vow. Now it's time to praise you because you have done what you said you would do because you are a faithful God. Not only is he a faithful God, he's a God who hears prayer. You who hear prayer. David often focuses on God's ability to hear prayer in the Psalms. All throughout the Psalms, he's he's continually returning to that, that God can hear prayer. Not only can he hear, but that he is awake, he is aware, he is listening. In fact, not only is he listening, he knows what's going on already. He's a God who hears and a God who is great enough to answer prayer. That is a God worthy of worship. That is a great God who hears our prayers, the longings of our hearts. It's that same thing that Paul draws our attention to in Philippians 4, 6, a passage I was planning on preaching this morning. And everything by prayer and supplication, right? Don't don't worry, but come to God in prayer and supplication. Why? Because he is a God who hears prayer. He's a God who's worthy of worship. To you, O God who hears prayer, to you all flesh will come. Right here is David's eschatological hope. Looking ahead to the very end. There is no other God who will triumph in the end. It is Israel's God who is the God who will win. He is the one who will be standing. This is the place in Jerusalem where our God will stand, where the nations will gather. In fact, we know from the very beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, God's plan through Abraham for his people, from the very beginning it was to bless the world through him. There has always been a universal plan. 
And David here is acknowledging that. God hasn't changed his plan. He has provided all that we need for another year. And we look forward to many more because we know that he is coming back. And we know that when he comes, the nations will gather. His kingdom is coming. All flesh will come. Verse 3 and 4, we really get into this idea of God's spiritual provision. The context of this psalm, as we've seen in verses 1 and 2, in general in my introduction, is a harvest psalm of thanksgiving. But here we see in verse 3, iniquities prevail against me. That's something that we can all attest to, is it not? I am a sinner. And if you didn't know you're a sinner, the Bible tells you you're a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Even our righteous works are as filthy rags. I hope you know that you're a sinner. And there's no hope for you against your sins on your own. Iniquities prevail against me. And yet, as for my transgressions, as for my sins, all of these iniquities that prevail against me, what's the answer? Eventually, I will overcome them. Is that what he says? No, look at the answer here in verse 3. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Brothers and sisters, that is mercy. That is grace. I am the sinner. And yet it is God who will provide atonement, covering or cleansing. Really the idea, if you boil it down, the idea of forgiveness. I have offended a holy God. I am the one against whom iniquities prevail. And yet all of my transgressions, you will forgive them. You will wipe them out. We have a little bit of an advantage on David here. Because you see, as David writes this, David's looking forward. His understanding of forgiveness is tied to the altar. He sees a picture of what God will do. As they slaughter these lambs, as this blood is spilt on his account because of his sins. But he looks beyond that, knowing that one day God's going to provide a perfect lamb. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of being in a point in history where we can look back to that spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for my sins and for yours. It is in Jesus Christ that God provides atonement for our sins, forgiveness. And note what David goes on to say in verse 4. It's not... I am so thankful, God, that I was able to become good enough so that I could deserve this grace of yours. It's not what he says. This atonement that God provides comes by God's sovereign choice alone, by grace. Blessed is the man that you choose. The one that you cause to approach you. David understands that atonement comes about by nothing in himself or of himself. It is all of the grace of God. 
There is no approach to God outside of the grace of God. For as Jesus says in the New Testament, no one comes to the Father but by me. Coming to to dwell in your courts, in your presence. Brothers and sisters, this is a gospel-centric passage. This is a passage that where we are in history draws our minds to the cross of Jesus Christ who died for us, his blood that was shed on our account because of our iniquities, because of my sins. David understood that though he was under law, salvation was not through the law. There's no hope. There's there's no hint of law here. David is looking to God who will forgive his sins. David's hope here is grace and grace alone. We shall be satisfied, verse 4 goes on, with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. It is in your presence that we will rejoice forevermore. That's a truth that we see tied all the way back even to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Do you know how that psalm ends? And I will dwell in the the courts, in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That truth, I shall not want, carries all the way through that psalm into eternity. Not because I'm good enough, but because the Lord is my shepherd. By his grace alone, by his goodness alone, we will be satisfied. It is all that we need. There is nothing more to add to what God will and has done for us in Christ. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. Note the the boldness of David here in verse 5. There is a bold confidence and high expectations that mark his faith. You are the God who hear. You are the God who will answer. Verse 5. I know that you will do this, God, and I know that it will be awesome. Why? Because you are the God of our salvation. David's confidence here in verse 5 finds its root all the way back in the reality of verses 1 to 4. David can be confident because he knows that God is the God of his salvation. He is the God who will provide for his atonement. And if he can save me from my iniquities, if God can save me from my sin, then there is no enemy on earth or in heaven that can separate me from him. That's a passage we're familiar with, is there not? In Romans 8. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. He who gave up his own son for us, will he not also give us all things? Again, Romans 8. David's confidence here is the same confidence of all those who trust in God. Because we serve a faithful God. You who are the confidence 
of all the ends of the earth and all the far off seas. Not, not just as praise waiting for you, God, here in Zion. Praise is waiting for you to the ends of the earth. Because sin reigns in all the earth, God's grace will abound in all the earth. His grace will reach the farthest edges. One day, a crowd will be gathered of every tongue and nation and tribe. Because God's grace cannot be stopped. It will go forth to the ends of the earth. And those even in the far off ends of the earth, they will join David in this confidence that God, by his grace, will provide atonement for me. Isaiah 12 verses 1 to 2 looks forward to that day. Speaking of God's salvation, of a well that is overflowing, that never runs dry. Salvation enough for everyone. God's grace is endless. So the first five verses of this psalm look to God's spiritual provision. Our God has given us all that we need for salvation. There's a big problem that we are sinners, that iniquity is prevailing against us, and yet by God's grace, he has provided all that we need for atonement. Secondly, in verse 6, David turns his attention then to something that's also important, but maybe not quite as important as salvation, but God's daily provision, his physical provision. He begins by focusing on God's great power, verses 6 to 8. This is the God who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the furthest parts of the are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and the evening rejoice. God is a powerful God. He is the God who created the mighty mountains. He is the tamer of the roaring seas. In fact, verse 7, you who still the noise of the seas, one thing you'll note as you work your way through the Psalms is that often the sea, the sea represents chaos. Even sin that has dominion in the world around us. And yet what verse 7 tells us is that God has complete control even over the most powerful and chaotic thing on earth, even the sea. Our God has control over that because our God created it. Not only does our God still the waters, but he also stills the nations. Just as he has complete control over the oceans, so he has complete control over the nations. If you doubt that, read through the book of Daniel. It's a powerful book as we follow these nations, as God makes predictions through Daniel, prophecies of what will happen, and through history, that is exactly what has happened. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And yet, where David goes from that, is that all of this great power of God is at work to provide for you. 
He is the God who created mountains. He is the God who stills the seas. He is the God who has control over all the peoples. He is the God who who brings the sun up in the east and sets the sun in the west. His control extends to the ends of the earth and the heavens and the earth declared the glory and the power of God as we saw in Romans 1. And yet this great and powerful God is not against you. He is for you. All of his power is at work for you, verse 9 goes on to say. There's almost a change in tone that you can sense where, where verses 6 and 7 and 8 are, you can almost think of God as, as big and great and powerful. And then the scene shifts and he's tender, and loving and caring. You visit the earth and you water it. He's actively involved, caring for his creation, providing not just a little bit, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. He's provided all that we need. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. What's interesting is that this psalm started with focusing on Jerusalem. Praise is awaiting you, God, in Zion. And yet here, the psalmist is backing way up and he's saying, but God's not only provided for us, he's provided for them. All the peoples of the earth from the one end to the other, from the rising of the sun to the setting, you provide their grain. You provide us water. This is how you've prepared it. water its ridges abundantly you settle its furrows you make it soft with rain you bless its growth provides all that we need you crown the year with your goodness have you ever thought of thanksgiving in in that way thanksgiving really our american harvest Celebration, if you want to name it that. It is the crowning achievement of the year. It is at Thanksgiving when we are celebrating the the process of of planting and harvesting, uh, growing and harvesting, coming to completion. It is at Thanksgiving near the end of the year that we celebrate. God has provided for another year. We gather as families. We eat a big feast from the fruit that God has provided. This is the crowning achievement, a year-long process come to completion. Once again, God has provided every passing year and every single harvest testifies to God's providential care. Every new year that comes and in every year that ends is 365 days more of evidence of God's goodness and care and provision. We look up as as Romans 1 and, and Psalm 19 and many others tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, the cycles of life proclaim the goodness of God. 
that year after year after year, he provides. We look to the heavens and we see a great and powerful God. And we look to the fields and see a caring and tender God. You have crowned the year with your goodness. Your paths drip with abundance. The carts overflowing is really the idea here. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. Not just God providing for people, but God cares for all of creation. Even the places where man has not touched, even there God provides. Even there his dew and his rain come. As Luke 12, verses 6 to 7 remind us, his eye is on the sparrow. Matthew 6, 25 to 34, he cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Do you think he won't care for you? The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy, they also sing. All of creation praising our God who has provided for it. Brothers and sisters, God has crowned the year with his goodness. And once again, we can all testify together to that truth that God has crowned this year once again with his goodness. The message of Psalm 65 is that our thanksgiving has a direction. As we, as the church, give thanks, we are not just throwing thanks out there into the air. We are thankful to someone. The direction of our thanksgiving, the direction of our praise, it is to God Almighty. The God who cares. Life is not random, rather it is directed by the purposeful hand of a sovereign God. He cares for creation. He cares for you. Enough that he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins. He provides not only your food, your raiment, and and money. Those are good things. But more importantly, he provides salvation through Jesus Christ. That is your greatest need. And by the grace of God, he has met that need through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I think also one of the messages of Psalm 65, as you look at a psalm like this and you recognize the sovereignty of God, I think you also have to confess that a sovereign God demands, and I use demands there in the the idea of deserves, a sovereign God deserves unconditional thanksgiving. We don't often put those two words together. Normally we think of unconditional with love. God's unconditional love. He loves me despite conditions, no matter what. And yet the testimony of Scripture is that in response we owe him unconditional thanksgiving. A response of thankfulness regardless of the conditions. 
Because in all conditions, we know from Romans 8 that God is at work for our good. In all conditions, our God is providing. That's one of the points that I was going to bring out, not only that that I see here in Psalm 65, but I was going to bring that out as we looked at Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and Philippians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Each one of those passages tell us to give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always for all things. It doubles it up there. Always for all things, give thanks. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, give thanks. Philippians 4.6, in everything, by prayer and supplication, give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, in everything, give thanks. There is no condition, no circumstance in which thankfulness is not the proper response. Because your God is good, he is sovereign, and he has provided all that you need. So in all circumstances, give thanks. By reminding us of God's provision, both in salvation and creation, this psalm calls us to respond to God with rejoicing and to go forth in faith. Looking back at a year that has been crowned with God's goodness, going forth, looking forward to another year that we know by God's grace will be crowned with his goodness. Until by the grace of God, Jesus Christ comes back. Even so come, Lord Jesus.